Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Perhaps if you were to just start by introducing yourself and telling us where you work. Sure. Hi, I'm Chris Hawkins. I'm a nurse practitioner in the emergency department in Cairns in far north Queensland. Great. Thanks, Chris. Hey, good to talk to you again. It's been a long time. Um, Certainly has. We, we go back a little ways, back to the sort of mid to uh, third quarter of the 90s. Um, in Victorian EDs, we've been on a bit of a pandemic roller coaster for the last few months. How are you and your colleagues going at the moment up there in Cairns? Look, we've been really lucky. You know, we're a good three or four day drive from the southern border. Uh, not nearly that far from the tip of the north, but we've had nothing coming in from that. Although I do understand that PNG is having a bit of a hard time at the moment. And the lockdown, whilst it hasn't gone well politically with some, has been fantastic for us. Um, we are being very, very careful. We've got a defined COVID area with staff who are volunteering to work in that area. And those staff who have a higher risk are uh, been uh, relocated. Even I took seven weeks off with my past medical history um, when we first got word of COVID heading our way. But uh, great staff, tremendously prepared. Interesting thing about Cairns is it attracts some fascinating people, mainly for lifestyle, but also for work. And you know, we've got some internationally recognized disaster people. Uh, Mark and Angie, husband and wife team, they teach at the UN uh, Diploma in Disaster Management every year. So that, this is what they do for a living in their spare time. Uh, so they were involved in with many others in setting up our COVID preparedness plan. And it's gone very, very well. So you've um, you've geographically changed your, your department a little or? Yep. So we, uh, we have... Um, department of about 50 beds. Uh, we see about 70, 80,000 a year normally. Uh, and we have a defined pediatric area, which is all single rooms. So we've changed that to our COVID area. Uh, and we've also got ramping up options. We had our local uh, BEMS, uh, in the engineering services come in and we planned how we were going to partition off and segment the department should COVID arrive and we had to grow the ED. So the original plans were just a pediatric area, which has got about eight cubicles in it, uh, all of which are single, all of which are isolated. Uh, and we can isolate that area. And we've uh, walled off the corridors that go to that area to allow us to have that functioning independently, essentially. Uh, so doffing and donning um, is ha happens within that area. Uh, and if necessary, we've now got plans to uh, wall off other parts of the ED um, as we move through the department to pay upon workload. It's, we're seeing patients that we suspect, but of course it's never come to be, we're very glad to say. But those patients have the classic symptoms that can be from COVID or anything else that's respiratory based. Uh, we manage in that area. And I think one of the tricky things is, is, um, 
down down here at least you know you kind of need to suspect everybody everybody oh, who so true so true i mean uh, uh, you may not be aware but uh, the, literally as of day before yesterday the uh, there are large parts of brisbane and surrounding areas who have redefined the emergency practice they they now mask for every patient coming in uh because of risk they've got you know active community cases there uh, we have just been so lucky up here Mm. Sounds interesting. Um, setting COVID aside, Chris, what are the main challenges facing your ED and health services at the moment? Well, this is purely personal opinion, uh, but the, I, I mean, Cairns is just one of the best places to live, but it's a long way from everywhere. Now, we're at 350k from our next tertiary emergency department, and that's a fair haul even by rotary wing. Um, so it's difficult to attract staff and staff feel a long way away from a lot of places so we get some great people who come and stay forever like me um, and we get some people who transit through uh, looking for lifestyle um, but we also have all the other issues that eds have and you know, we're all familiar with ramping and the impact on that but we can't go on bypass you know our next hospital up will be townsville and that is four and a half hours by road so that's not an option. We have to work around and we have to be as efficient as we possibly can be. And we have to have a hospital that can support us. So we are in exactly the same ramping issues as so many other places. Um, it's a great place uh, to work, but we have also um, fascinating other issues that you generally wouldn't meet. Uh, we have about a third of our patients are indigenous and Healthcare is just a profoundly Western white-based service. It always has been. So we strive to make it relevant and acceptable to all the patients that come through our doors. Um, and it's, it, that is not easy. You know, for, for many of our uh, indigenous uh, patients and clients, you know, English is their second language and often their third. Uh, so it's really hard for them to take on board uh, what we bring to their health. Um, and there is much intergenerational uh, concern regarding healthcare delivery. And, and with, some, with good justification, quite honestly, uh, we try really hard to make it uh, as relevant and as acceptable as possible. Um, so they're probably the biggest issues for us at the moment. Yeah, and that's certainly something that is interesting to me, Chris, because um, in the political dark ages when I worked at Cairns Base, one of the, my impressions was just how well the staff um, adapted without what appeared to be much formal training in um, dealing with um, uh, First Nation people's um, particular needs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We all do... Um, indigenous awareness training now and that's, and that's as everybody I no matter what your um, profession or occupation is um, I think it's and we, we would love to have more indigenous staff we have indigenous liaison workers to bridge many of the gaps that uh, occur but what we really need are indigenous nursing and medical staff and more of them we have some uh, but you know it's our indigenous patients and clients and consumers, they, they need to see 
their own people. Not a guy who has been in Australia since 86, but still has an English accent. Um, and uh, it's, um, I think on the whole, we're, we're, we're certainly getting there. We've got a way to go. We've got an organization which is highly committed to being as approachable and as accessible as possible for our Indigenous people. Yeah. Chris, you've worked in a lot of emergency departments up and down the eastern seaboard, um, and we'll get to some of the roles that you've done soon, but having worked in three different states with three different ways of managing the clinical governance aspect of healthcare, I'm really interested to hear um, how you view the ways in which this affects emergency care from state to state. And look, it, it, is, it is fascinating to see how disparate different states deliver their health care. Uh, when I was in New South Wales down in the far south, uh, New South Wales is a profoundly centralised governance system. You know, right down to the contents of a central line insertion pack will be defined from Sydney, and that's where you're going to do it. Um, and that was in response to uh, an issue I, I understand they had with uh, insertion practices. But you got the other when I was in Victoria, it was profoundly decentralized. Essentially, each hospital was its own business unit with the Department of Health happening down in Melbourne uh, and as an overseeing head office. Um, Queensland was like New South Wales when I arrived, very, very uh, centralized, which was very difficult to work with. You know, they're a four-day car drive away um, uh, and now has become decentralized. Uh, and I think we are the much better for it. You can have an executive which is much more responsive to local community uh, requirements. Uh, and you, I think you also get an executive and, and a workforce that are more focused on their local orientation and local demands and recognize what needs to be done. Um, and quasi as a union rep, I still am for the QNMU, um, it's also easier to negotiate with somebody who is in the same building, their offices are in the same city, um, rather than having to try and negotiate with someone down at the head office. Just that our head office, had it still been centralized, would have been a couple of hours uh, flight away. Uh, so the the centralization of New South Wales, uh, I think, had some benefits, but on the whole, uh, I would prefer to be in the decentralized structure that I experienced in Victoria and is now in place uh, in uh, Queensland Health. That, that's really interesting um, because I, I used to get quite jealous of places like New South Wales where, um, you know, you had one, one ring to rule them all. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the reality is, you know, we're all responsible to the Ministry of Health. If you're going to say it's a democracy, then you are beholden to the democratically elected leader. And we all know that health can be a political force. It both gains and loses votes. Uh, it's always at the forefront of people's minds, especially when there's no election. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, for the day-to-day -day running and for the direction of a health service, I think it serves our society better if it is managed at a local level by those people who experience it. 
Yeah, that's that's really that's really interesting to hear, um, especially from somebody who has spent a significant amount of time in each different type. Yeah, I guess there's um, there's a, a a bit of a need for somewhere in the middle there, where we've got some kind of consistency mm. across healthcare networks, and then as well as uh, decisions that are made locally to adapt to your local, uh, you know, the services that you need to deliver. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it needs. But the uh, certainly I, I have transitioned through the decentralization and from the point of view of uh, the growth of our service, um, it's we are the better for it. I agree. I think I, the thing I find about the decentralized approach is that you tend to build that staff feel a bit more loyal to the organization mm. as well. So they they tend to, I think that, they work really hard to to meet the the organization's mission and vision, so they drive as one together, which yeah. um, sometimes can be missing. I think from when it's centralized. Yeah, and we're we're fortunate. We have we have a good executive. Mm. Uh, I have I have no place with executive other than they pay my salary. But <laughs> <laughs> the uh, and I I look I'll sit down and at, at the table and go toe to toe at times um, on behalf of the union if necessary, but. It, it works for us, and you know, the far north is just different. We're, the tropics are different to Sydney. Uh, we have different people with different problems, with different lifestyles, uh, and I think that's what we can address uh, by having local, uh, a local empowered executive manager. that you've had a variety of different roles in nursing and beyond. So these spend roles in intensive care, coronary care units, nurse unit managers in regional, uh, regional Victoria and to mm. metropolitan ED, clinical nurse specialist, EG educators, postgrad ED university lecturer and nurse practitioner. So there's quite a few. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that ED is in your blood. Absolutely. Why do you think that is? And do you think you've found your lane as a nurse practitioner? Yeah, look, uh, I am still excited every day I walk into work, even though these days it's with walking stick. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, every day that I, that we go to work, um, I am likely to meet a person having the worst day of their life. And it's my job, my role is to help with my colleagues and I have some awesome people I work with in all professions to help the patients navigate that experience. And I still get the buzz from that. And the first time I walked into an ED as a student nurse was 1979. And I did you know, about 10 years ICU thrown in in the middle of that, somewhere at the beginning, uh, earlier half of it. But it's, it is still the buzz of the person for whom had no plan to join us in the ED when they got up that day and their life has gone bad. And our job is to make it less bad and as good as we can. Uh, and I've been on that side too. I've been at the other end of the stethoscope for the worst days of my life whilst I was up in Cairns. So I, I've worked with my colleagues every day and I've had them work on me uh, in a resuscitation room. And I'm just really lucky that I still get the buzz to do that. And, I've, and the people I work with. For me, it's never been about the pathology or the technology. 
It's all about the person at the middle of it. Even when I did tertiary ICU and quaternary ICU, um, it's, you know, the toys are great, but it should be about a person that allows you to look after them as well as you can and have the technology to do it for you. That's, that's how I get the buzz from it. Um, and being a nurse practitioner, look, it's the best job I've ever had. It's, I get to be a nurse doing more. I get, I mean, Queensland has had a fantastic, our new enterprise bargaining system, a couple of years old now. Uh, we get 20% non-clinical. That means 20% of my time, I can do executive stuff. I can teach. I can have a nursing influence in the way our department functions and grows. Uh, I, and that's outside of any union role I may have. This is using your most skilled clinical nurses to help drive the organization forward. I think it's been a phenomenal benefit uh, to uh, Queensland Health and to the department. It sounds uh, phenomenal. How did you get that? Oh, we, <laughs> yes. we had, Can we get that uh, in Victoria, please? We, we were in so fortunate. We, mm. had, uh, we have a director of nursing who is a nurse practitioner who's very active in QNMU, much more active than I am, and they were driving that. And it, it got on board, and I was amazed they got it through, but it gives you real time to be more than a frontline clinician doing more. Because, you know, these are some of the most experienced nurses in the whole of Australia. I've been, I qualified in 81, and I've spent about a year on a ward, and the rest of it has been ED and ICU. Various types, some time in uni, a lot of time being an educator. I, I love the work still today, and I can't see myself doing any more anything different. And when I came up to Cairns, it was just so different than the difficulties of the nurse practitioner system starting in Victoria. It was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, you can never escape from some of the politics of just being a nurse practitioner in a system where there is all the tensions for funding, etc. But I love the work I do, really. Cool. I remember I was, I was reading your blurb getting perhaps, sorry, a bit off script now, Chris. Mm. Um, you said that you, you, you your blurb's very person-centred, patient-centred as well, but you yep. really enjoy looking after the mental health patients. Yeah. Is that yeah. something that's always been the case for you or are you Not finding that more and more sort of mental health Presentations are occurring, so that's where your kind of area of interest and expertise has moved to. When I was down in Melbourne, hardly at all. Um, Possibly not even much in New South Wales, but coming up here, we have a big mental health population who are profoundly disadvantaged. Um, It is quite easy in Cairns to live on little or no money. Now, you you don't really have to have accommodation. coldest day I've had for a few months was 14 this morning. So a lot of people are homeless. At any, at any point, about 2% of our population is actually homeless with another 2% couch surfing or equivalent. And that's a big population. And most of those people have mental health issues. We have a high transient population uh, with mental illness passing through. Um, so I have certainly gravitated towards it as a nurse practitioner. Uh, and these are people who are so grateful and are so in need of our care and also get physically sick. 
so that the real skills are to be able to tease out how you can help them navigate their mental illness, which may well destabilize due to physical illness, and be available for them and understand what they want out of the interaction with the emergency department. That's interesting to hear you say that, Chris. There's um, one of our um, honours students at the uni is doing a study looking at those often overlooked uh, physical problems in mental health and uh, she describes it as the problems in the shadows, which, which I think is a great analogy. Um, how, how does the mental health aspect of your care, how does that work with being a nurse practice? Does that work quite well together? Well, I think it's, if you take a step back slightly, I don't work in what most people would understand as a nurse practitioner role in Victoria when I left. I don't do fast track. We have a fast track and I spend about a third of my time there. Um, I work from recess through to fast track and back again. Um, in recess, I'll often be functioning as an advanced practice nurse. So, um, but in our acute area, which would be what in the, in the Austin we used to call the monitored area, so their patients having stemmy, STEMI, stroke, etc., etc., um, severe abdominal pain, all those type of routine, high-end emergency patients. I spend about two-thirds of my time there. We also have our mental health patients in there. So I, I will just take the next person on our list that I can look after, um, and they are on many occasions a significant mental, mental illness, whether it's drug-induced, or whether it's going to be a primary um, psychosis, a primary depression, um, suicidality. We have a growing population of adolescents with you know, real suicidal ideation. It's a really sad people who are getting into a service that they're probably going to be interacting with for much of the rest of their life. So that's, that's how I meet these people. So as a nurse practitioner, I'm their primary clinician. I liaise with our in-department psychiatric team. We're great. We have uh, mental health uh, CNCs, clinical nurse consultants. We have a psych registrar. We have uh, a psych consultant allocated to the acute services uh, in the ED. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of becoming the person that helps the client negotiate their way through that. Um, they often come in with multifactorial illness um, and so we'll help treating their mental health issues, their drug issues, alcohol issues and their physical illness as well. It's interesting to hear, Chris, um, in the organisation where we're getting a crisis hub. Um, yeah. And it's interesting to hear the impact that a that an emergency nurse prac can have in that area in that sort of dual kind of diagnosis. So it's something that hopefully we can get into into our crisis hub at some point too. I think nurse practitioners can bring a real impact to those patients. We we approach it differently. Mm. We don't we don't pathologize. Well, I don't pathologize. Um, we look for what the client wants out of the interaction. All right, all right, nurse prac people. Enough with you. Enough with your fa a fancy pants nurse practitioner. Oh, look, no, no, it's, it's, and I think it would be awful if that was the case. Look, I'm just, I just do more nursing. I do it a bit yeah. different. Um, I, 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 can, you know, I can prescribe meds. And 
we don't have a limit on the meds that we can prescribe. But I can, I can basically, my rules are, I can prescribe anything for any patient that's triaged in the ED that's purchased by Queensland Health that I know about. And that's essentially the criteria. So we don't, we don't have a formulary like Victoria is thinking of abolishing. But I'm still a nurse and I'm still looking after people. And uh, it's a matter of doing what the person needs from a nursing perspective. Yeah, that, that's really good. Can I throw you another unsignaled question? Mm. Um, given you've talked a lot about the differences in um, uh, in working in sort of uh, uh, quite remote areas. I mean, Kansas is a funny one because it's a biggish town and a very remote area. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say to a nurse, an ED nurse who's um, been working mostly in maybe tertiary metropolitan EDs, um, about coming up and working in Cairns if your workforce is, in fact, um, in need? Look, I think it's a great place. I love the tropics. Um, I'd never been before um, I stepped off the uh, aircraft to live here. Um, it took me about a year to get used to the humidity. Um, it never gets as hot as Melbourne gets in summer, and it never gets as cold. It's a cold day today at 14 degrees. It's already high 20s. And we're talking mid-morning there. Um, the the important thing I think to recognise about regional Australia is that the work is different. As I said, about thirty percent of our patients are Indigenous. Thirty percent of them are pediatric. Unlike those people who work in major cities, you don't have that pre-hospital filtering. The children don't go to the children's hospital. Now, the trauma doesn't go to the trauma hospital. It all comes to us. And it comes to us sometimes really slowly. Now, we'll have someone come in from um, a station, which might be a three-day drive away, and they didn't want to bother the rural flying doctor service, so they drove. And there are three days of illness or injury, and they turn up literally unannounced at our door. Uh, so it's a very different work environment from that perspective. We all see, we see the urban stuff. And there's a population of 150,000 in Cairns. Um, with a very large, you probably add another thirty to fifty thousand people when tourism was a thing. Um, so that's uh, another transient population that's just a different way of nursing those people because you know, they're in a foreign country, often um, speaking a foreign language. Um, and we also support Torres and Cape Health Service going right up to the top of Australia, and we'll get some people coming down from PNG. You now it's uh, at least once a month, I'll, I'll have someone in the ED that just decided they wanted to consult Australian healthcare, so they got on a flight in Port Moresby and get off in Cairns. Um, um, so for us, routinely, we'll see tropical illnesses that there'll be a paragraph or so about in a textbook. You know, dengue fever, leptospirosis, even diphtheria occasionally um, is really the work we do, as well as all the ordinary work um, of the, the emergency department. So it's unfiltered, probably is the best way of putting that, unfiltered and a bit different. When I worked up there, we had a lot of, uh, we had a big sort of surge in dengue fever and things like that. Did you, is that something that's still a problem in Yeah, well, North well, lucky it's not endemic, so where they always look really, really carefully for the Sentinel case. Um, but since you worked up here, we also have the Wolbachia uh, virus, which, uh, 
bacteria has been inserting uh, inserted into a lot of the mosquitoes. So uh, that generally causes them to die at about 10 to 14 days old, I understand. And they're not normally mating to uh, transmit the illness of dengue uh, until they're about two to three weeks old. So we've seen a significant reduction in dengue. It's here every year, uh, and you've got to be careful. Um, and you have to take appropriate precautions, and we see dengue every year, uh, just as we see leptospirosis when the cane harvests are on. Um, but it's, I think, uh, less prevalent than it was. Probably get to see a lot, my memory is, you probably get to see a lot more snake bites than we do down here in Victoria as well. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, we do. Uh, we've got a tremendous toxinology service and toxicology service up here. Um, you know, we've got Mark Littles up here, one of the authors of the book, um, and uh, there's uh, some of his colleagues. Um, so we're very fortunate. I was saying we attract some amazing people who look for lifestyle and bring with them phenomenal experience and skills, both in medicine and nursing. Chris, um, I've asked so many of the guests this question, and to be honest, I'm not quite sure that we've quite reached saturation with the answers yet. So <laughs> I'd love to hear um, what you have to say. But I want to ask a little add-on part to the question that I've asked others. So um, part one is if you were to wake up tomorrow and the state of emergency care in Australia was um, ideal or perfect, what would it look like? But also, um, we'll, we'll start with that. What, what would that look like to you? You know, it would mean that the colour of your skin state of your mental health or your gender did not impact upon your access to emergency care or healthcare generally. You know, all the research is we're getting better, but we're certainly not there yet. We just really need to focus on our minority groups and not forget our majority groups too, but we can do better. Um, we need an EDs which are not paralyzed by exit blocks. We all have it. Um, we need to, I think, nurses should all be specialist qualified. We know, as Julie said in a previous podcast, we know that specialty qualified emergency nurses result in more patients surviving in emergency departments. And that education needs to be much, much more available. I love the way that Victoria used to sponsor staff. That, that doesn't really happen up here. Queensland Health have a different approach to their funding of postgraduate emergency nursing. Um, but I, I firmly believe that uh, we need to improve that. Um, and I think we just need to move on from the tension and in some places the downright hostility towards NPs. It should be a thing of the past. And we're all essentially doing the same job for the same people. Um, they're just in different locations. We all have the same goal, and that's to help people navigate through an emergency service at you know, potentially the worst day of that's interesting. That that tension you mentioned, I, I don't get it. I don't. I don't get the 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 reasons behind it. I think there's many different reasons. I think now uh, there are they are many and varied. I see people who generally have a belief that they're qualified in their role and they should be the people that do it. No. Uh, and that others should not encroach. 
There is the concern about loss of funding. So if we're giving money to nurse practitioners, then there must be less for others. Um, there are some who believe that nurse practitioners haven't demonstrated their skill base. I think it's, it's very varied. Um, and I think nurse practitioners also, we need to take responsibility and demonstrate that we have the skill set. Uh, and that will be a constant, ongoing issue that uh, nurse practitioners will have. And they have it overseas as well. It, we're, we're not unique in this. I, I don't want to in any way single out um, any state or any, any system. I talk to friends of mine still over in the UK. I read literature from the US. It goes on everywhere. <coughs> I think, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think hostility can come from everywhere but sometimes it's not sort of overt or hostility it can be just simple little comments like you know you, you know something like you know I'm, I'm getting too old to fight that fight now against against the nurse prax and it's kind of not delivered hostility but anyway that's a topic for another talk but hopefully <laughs> with um but hopefully with uh your sort of 20 percent protected non-clinical time Hopefully, we'll start to see a lot more of that kind of evidence come out to yeah. say that we are beneficial. Whereas, I think that's—I I mean, I'm not speaking for all nurse practices in other states, but for me, that's the thing that I find is that juggling that kind of non-clinical aspects of the role mm. Mm. Um, in a uh, in your kind of that's on top of your your workload already. That's the thing that I, so having that protected time written into the EBA, EBA I think is fantastic. So it'd be interesting to see the benefits that come out of that in a year or two's time. Yeah, absolutely. It has been tremendous. Uh, it gives the nurse practitioners so much more time you know, to both contribute to the organization, to learn more. Um, you know, we have, we try and maintain a day a month. So we have, I work full time, which for me is four, 10 hour shifts a week. Um, so I get three and a half shifts where I'm not clinical in, on any four-week roster cycle. And that is a tremendous opportunity to follow up on things and to learn things, refresh, mm -hmm. besides the stuff that we all do at home. Um, yeah. It really is great. And the main thing is, is being able to contribute to the nursing thrust within an organization. Uh, that is, I think is really important rather than always having to focus on the clinical imperative. Agreed. Mm. You've probably um, you've probably actually touched on a couple of the things from part two of that question, and that is, if you could improve three things about how we deliver nursing care in the ED, what what would be what would they be, and why? Uh, look, I think that as I said before, I think all nurses working in EDs need to be either working towards or be qualified in a, a specialist role. It's, it's a highly specialist area. It takes special people to work in it, um, and they need to really understand the work they do to significant depth. I think that um, nurse practitioners need to get serious with their preparation. I think you know, if you go back to our conversations in the early 2000s about what nurse practitioners would be as in Victoria, uh, we never expected nurse practitioners to only function in fast track, but nurse practitioners have accepted that as a default. It's an easy way to go because you won't get much flack from medicine or the executives 
you'll just you know, work, you'll do the bit that, quite honestly, medicine don't want to do. Nurse practitioners are worth more than that. And I think, quite honestly, many universities have copped out in not teaching that content. Um, it's, yeah, I think that there needs to be much more thorough clinical preparation, evidence of the clinical preparation, if nurse practitioners are to offer more to healthcare delivery and to emergency care. I personally believe that nurse practitioners should be prepared at doctoral level and that the nurse practitioner tertiary programs should teach the required clinical knowledge. You can't presume that you pick it up and the university does research, professional accountability, pharmacology. There is more to learning to be a nurse practitioner than that. Let's put the cat amongst the pigeons. <laughs> Again, I think that's a topic for another. That could go on. I could talk about that for a long time, <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> um, Chris, you, you've made a pretty compelling case for um, a lot of nurses to head up to far north Queensland. You're probably going to get inundated with people I with jobs so. now. But uh, I would, I would highly recommend working alongside Chris Hawkins. He is such an incredible teacher, Thank you. Um, such a skilled professional, um, and such an insightful person. I, I learned a hell of a lot when I was a junior ED nurse from you, and I've alluded to some of those over these podcasts. But head up to Queensland. It's a great find place. Chris, work alongside him, and I dare say you will not be, uh, you'll, you'll not be upset with your choices. Thank you. So much. Chris, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you again after such a long time. Um, thanks for being on the show and thanks for all your insights. And come on up, have a look around, see what we do for a living sometime. <laughs> it really is a great place. It is. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure, John. Pleasure. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. <laughs>